What about you've worked with Jimmy Carr, haven't you, on 8 Out of 10 Cats? What did you make of his joke about when he likened about the Holocaust and he, he made a reference to gypsies? I thought it was a bit lazy. Yeah. Um, I thought that that joke he wanted to do about a different demographic, but he didn't have the balls to do it, so he just chose a demographic that is silent mostly because we don't let them speak, you know. But also at the same time, like, people love Jimmy Carr and you can't, like, he didn't, he didn't do anything illegal, you know? I'm Neil Maggs, and this is Bristol Unpacked, speaking to fascinating Bristolians on topics where others may fear to tread. Brought to you by the city's community-owned media, The Bristol Cable. In this week's episode of Bristol Unpacked, it's all about comedy. The huge news all across the world, Will Smith slapped Chris Rock. So, we talked to Bristolian's finest, Jade Adams. The comedian recently moved back from London to Bristol and features in a BBC documentary. So where is the line with comedy? Is anything fair game? We also talked to her about her life growing up in the city, why she left, why she's come back, and the impact her sister, who died 11 years ago, had upon her. You are one of the few people that have sort of left the city, Bristol. You were, you know, born and bred in Bedminster and have actually become famous and have actually become, <laughs> you know, a master at the craft in which you do. Oh, what a compliment. You did say blow smoke up your ass, didn't you? So that's Oh, I said I did say. I was like, yeah. if you don't, then I'm getting off this interview. But that is such a compliment. Thank you. Yeah, but no, you are though. And I'm not, and I think that, that actually there are, I don't know why that is. There are so few people um from Bristol that do. But you had to leave the city to kind of I guess find your voice or find your your path really, didn't you? Yeah, well, uh, back in 2004, Mm. there wasn't really social media or anything. So if you did want to make it big anywhere, you sort of had to leave the city. So I decided to obviously go to Trafarest in Wales. Um, (laughs) Yeah, notorious. Notorious place for... um, Well, actually, you say we we do jest, but Tom Jones is from Pontypridd, where I lived in a street house. Okay, and you can sing sing as well. So you could have gone in in that direction then if you just stayed... I think it's probably, I think the singing thing will happen at some point in my life. It's just at the moment I'm wanting to just make a name for myself. And the easiest way to do that was to open my gob and say some opinions because that's the world we live in nowadays. When did you end up in London then after after? So Wales? I moved to London in 2010 and I had like various bar jobs and waitressing jobs. Some lasted mm. two days. I remember I got this job at this cocktail bar that was way too fancy for me and they asked me way too many questions about the type of vodka that was used and I, I ended up just not going in for my shift the next day yeah, yeah. Um, I was a bit out of my depth but I, I just did bits and pieces I actually couldn't get in I decided I wanted to be a comedian when I was in Wales and then moved to London when I started getting more stuff in London so at yeah. that point I was a priest in an inflatable church at music festivals I was mm. dressing up in lycra leggings and doing this thing called Lost and Found at music festivals as well. We did best of all for like five years. I thought I was just going to hang out with celebrities and be on the VIP list. But actually, especially being the priest in the inflatable church, it really geared me up to do stand-up, funnily enough, because I'd be on a Mm. microphone having to improvise with a very drunk and rowdy crowd. 
When you say priest in, in an inflatable church, what, what do you mean? What is it kind of like a little blow up nightclub I, in, in, in a festival? Yeah, <laughs> basically, yeah. It's a little blow up nightclub in festivals. That is exactly right. what it is. Okay, I'm not an ordained priest, although You're I am. Not. I know I would. I'm thinking about getting a celebrancy so I can do celeb weddings. That's something I'm thinking <laughs> for the future. Okay, because I haven't yeah. got enough on. You know, always good to think ahead. Yeah, I'm always thinking of ways to like not go back to like call centers and stuff that's that's me does that anxiety that that anxiety stays with you doesn't it yeah yeah i've got think... that i've got that as well not that i'm you know kind of i'm mean named sort of locally but i that fear of backsliding I've, I've met people that are wealthy you know come from working class estates and stuff and and they're exceptionally kind of high up in what they do and there's always that slight kind of fear that at any point it could all go wrong and it, uh, you could slide back do you know what i mean you feel that yeah. then as well yeah Absolutely. You just, well, because everything I always say to people, especially if I meet people in the same industry and they're like, oh, you're doing so well at the moment and they feel like they're not. I always say to them, it's Mm. ebb and flow and I'm just on a great flow at the moment and I'm really enjoying it as it comes, but I don't put too much pressure on this being like forever. And in order to make myself not go crazy, I just have a lot of different pots boiling always and just make sure there's lots of things to fall back on. I was always told that growing up as well to definitely always have a fallback. And I know that there's this, we're in this world right now where people get on the internet and say these crazy things like don't have a fallback, just go for it. We're like, like we're American, but we're not, we're we're not, we're not reaching for the stars here. That was S club seven and look how well that went. Yeah, exactly. And I think there is a thing around, um, there is something about that, that having, uh, yeah, just kind of, I, I think also you having had a life not being famous, then being famous, and as you said, you know, working in, you know, you know, working in bar jobs. So I think you worked in Asda, is that right? Or your mum worked in Asda? Yeah, I around, worked, yeah? I, my mum worked in, I worked there too. Uh, I worked there for six months. Mum was there for like 30 odd years. I also ran Tantric Jazz Cafe on Corn Street. I worked, oh, yeah. yeah I, used, I used to run that. I, I ended up having to be the chef there because our chef went missing. Yeah. And we never found him. No one ever knew where he went. Um, yeah. We, I, I think he went back to Lebanon, I'll be honest. But I ended up becoming a Lebanese chef. Did you? <laughs> yeah. Is that cultural appropriation? Yeah, I think so. Um, but, <laughs> but this was like 2000 and... It was all right, you were allowed to do it back then. Yeah, 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 yeah it was yeah, fine. Yeah. It was like 2003, maybe. Yeah, 2003 it was. I was allowed to do it back then because there was yeah. no social media. So, yeah. No, no, yeah. Oh, I mean, that's it. I would just wonder if that gives you a different perspective of, of that, of the... Um the non-permanence of fame then, the fact that you've worked outside. Because there are some people that just become famous and have always been around that stuff that don't know the alternative to that. I mean, the Edinburgh Fringe Festival has really supported the careers of lots of people that are privately educated, um, which, and I'm, there's no shade to that. It's just it's just a, a fact that, yeah. uh, you know, Oxbridge um, educated, footlights, yeah, yeah, they haven't yeah. really had to go and get work. They sort of leave Oxbridge and then they end mm. up going and getting chosen places. But I, I've never really had that privilege, you know. I've yeah. got other privileges that I definitely experience, especially from working on Alma's Not Normal on the BBC and sort of a world in which, like, I, I come from two very loving parents and I know some people, especially my very good pal Sophie Willen, she was fostered when she was younger and she was in and out of care homes when she was growing up. And yeah. I have a privilege 
all by myself. But in terms of this comedy industry, there is something that I don't get. And it, I, I, I do this thing. I don't know if you do this as well, but you see something get announced online and, and then I'll go on their Wikipedia and I always say, I'm like, oh, there it is. <laughs> yeah. There's some parent who's in the industry yeah. or there's some, well, or, there's, yeah. or Ox, there's an Oxford Cambridge thing on there or there's some Russell University educated thing. Yeah. And, I, and and it is it is sort of infuriating. But I also, do it all the time. I get told off for doing it. And I think so, in so many regards, it's, it's kind of been to my detriment at times, but I can't help it. And actually, I think that, and there's also a thing now where people are kind of faking their credentials a little bit, aren't they? Or there's kind of, it, it's now cool to kind of dumb it down a bit. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I also like to keep a wide variety of people in my life. I've got a really close friend who went to Eton. As I yeah. said, there was no shade in the privately educated. I just think it's all about checking your privilege and making sure, yeah. uh, ma- ma- making making sure it's you. You make it worth it. Like it was so annoying when you see someone that's got loads of privilege and they're a little bit crap. That's so it's the about, thing. It's about I, being aware of it, isn't it, and owning it, right? Yeah. Yeah, rather than lying about it, you know, yeah. just own it, you know, and not be afraid of it and not not ashamed. The shame of it is we don't say these things to shame other people. We say it because it's true to us. And, yeah. you know, at the moment, the trend is is people that have a backstory are getting pushed forward. And that's OK, because, do you know, what? the trend ebbs and flows as well. Yeah, we'll we'll talk about the, the, the documentary a bit later, because you, you talk a little bit about about Bristol and, and, and you wander go wandering around. Bedminster visiting some people <laughs> that you used to know go back to your old school and, and, and stuff like that but I want to talk a little bit about about what kind of shaped you and motivated you and this was a really powerful thing in the film something I, I can kind of relate to a bit around your sister so you had a sister called Jenna who died around 11 years ago yeah and her, her death was obviously really had a profound impact upon you oh, massive, but was also yeah. the sort of the catalyst a little bit for for your kind of career motivation yeah, for sure. Like I, you know, I've got a massive sense of responsibility within my family. And I'm sure there's a lot of people that have had therapy that'd be like, don't do it for them, do it for you. But I do do it for me. But I also do it for them because we have had this like really incredibly, this really strange thing happen to it. It's strange is the word. Having yeah. someone that is so, and it wasn't like my sister was a wallflower either. She was loud. And then yeah. all of a sudden this tiny loud person is no longer here anymore you know and and it she was sort of ripped from us as well it's a real it was a real painful experience and i just i don't know i just feel like with all the love and 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 care and support i've had from my parents over my uh, life i just feel like actually if one child has to die then the other two can smash it you know my brother in his world he's smashing it too like both of us are doing really well in our fields and i think they're really proud almost what like a like a sense of you you kind of not oh it's the wrong word but it sharpens your focus to to live a a life because I think I, she's not here I yeah I think a lot of people um get into this industry specifically without a focus they just want to be not ignored anymore but for me it was I I just feel like that well, I, I think also it had some. There's a few things actually. It's why I'm I'm finding it hard to That's vocalize. Okay. Yeah. Um, one of the things, it's really specific things. So one of the things was when Jenna was sick, she asked my mum when she was feeling a bit morbid one day. She asked my mum to make sure no one ever forgot her. Okay. She said to me several times, "You're going to have to do this for the both of us." 
when she got sick and we were in the hospital for the first time, when we first discovered she had the tumour, she grabbed me and said, can you start making everyone laugh? Because they're all looking at me like I'm about to die and it's doing my nutting. Now, she was also the person that used to drag me around by my hand. I was in her shadow all the way through my childhood. And I looked up and I, you, every single family video is me looking for my sister to find out what I need to do next. She was younger and than you? She was two years older. older. And okay. so she, like those two years as well, Neil, were like 25 years she thought she was like 82 and I was five <laughs> and so she used yeah. to drag me around and I followed her like my first cigarette I ever had was with my sister and she was the one who taught me about sex and all yeah. of that stuff so I really looked up to her but then when she got sick she started asking things of me and 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 it's just sort of spiraled out of control I'll be honest and yeah. um I think that I do it for her I do it in spite of the situation and I also do it and this is very, very key. A lot of people get into this industry because they don't want to be ignored anymore. But I got into this because, and I'm not scared of it, because I've had the worst thing that's ever going to happen to me happen. So what else is there that I'm scared of? Yeah. No, I can, yeah. No, I can understand that. Because it's a kind of, that, that gives you a, a kind of deep um, strength in your core and a deep uh, sense, sense of perspective. And I think lots of people who have experienced grief also understand this. This is why I get on with grieving people or people that have lost people abruptly. I'm, and I'm like, I feel sorry for anyone that have lost their grandparents that are, didn't raise them. Um, um, mm. But it's not the same. But if you had a grandparent that raised you and was very parental in your life, it's a very different conversation. I'm not talking about that. You know, when some people lose their grandparents in their 80s and their 90s, it's yeah. not. It's a different type of grief. That is a oh, they've lived. Um, they've lived even maybe a different a sibling I think going before their time is also different than you losing a parent as well I think yeah it's I it won't be the same yeah. when I when I lose my parents even though I, that the idea of that frightens the shit out of me yeah. I it is it, still not the same like I just won't go through this again she was also like I was 25 and she was 27. And so I was so young as well. And so was she. And an entire life disappeared. And not only that, possible grandchildren for my parents, my yeah. my possible nieces and nephews, an entire life and existence that I had imagined just disappeared out of the world. Yeah. And it's taken such a long time to get used to that. Yeah. And, and I think there's something about a, a grief um, or even trauma in general that, it kind of tends to, it's almost a fork in the road moment. Did you have, did you initially, I don't know, did you obviously struggle to come to terms with it? Did you, did you drink more? Did you behave? Was there, did, did you, did you do sort of, you know. Did I avoid, get fucked up? Yeah. And avoidance, <laughs> but yeah, avoidance behaviours until you started to allow that process to take part. Cause I mean, you know, I, I did, I know other people that have, and then you kind of find it just takes, it takes a bloody while. I think, I, I think the getting fucked up bit is part of the process, actually, probably. Absolutely. I always say this to people. I had, I've had some people get in touch with me who have lost siblings. I get asked people asking me advice, and I'm like, just get fucked. <laughs> just, yeah. Just yeah. get drunk. Just get anything for two years. I, it, was two, it was like yep. two, three years, because the... It's you've just got. It's time you need. Time is the only healer when it comes to grief. I feel, and and those first three years are quite significant because the first year it's a little bit like sort of romantic. The whole idea of loss. Then the second year, everyone starts getting bored of you talking about it because they just want to move on. And then the third year for me was the year where I realised, oh, she's gone. 
oh I've got to do this all by myself and 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 how I got through all of that is just being I'll 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 say it this way I I, just being 26 27 I just partied I I hung out with people but I wouldn't say that it was anywhere near it wasn't like a dangerous amount it was just I was a bit freer and I allowed myself to try and enjoy life as much as I could okay I think the only destructive thing I really did around that time was um is have shit boyfriends. That's what <laughs> that's what I that the most yeah, destructive yeah. thing I've done in my life Matt, is have oh, terrible yeah. boyfriends. Uh, is, is, isn't it odd? I mean, my 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 situation just to get some context was I I I lost a friend. It wasn't a sibling when we were quite young, about not, sort of eighteen, nineteen, one of my best friends, and it kind of went that way a bit. And and it's really interesting, isn't it? Because I suddenly I don't know about you, I suddenly started being attracted to sort of the kind of women that I wouldn't have been before. Yeah. Quite destructive relationships. People that I know that I wouldn't have to get close to. Is that is that what you mean a little bit? Yeah. I, uh, people that would give me very dramatic situations in which I could live in a false reality yeah. with them, you know, yeah. where I didn't have to experience reality. And yeah. when reality came to us in our relationship, that's when all the problems when started it, sur- yeah. surfacing, you know? That's almost a psychologist would probably say that self-medication through people. Yeah. You know I I was co- just, just, well, some yeah. people would refer to it as codependency. Codependency, that's it, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I couldn't have I couldn't have drug dependencies or alcohol dependencies because they make you sick. And there is absolutely no way in the world that I'm allowing my parents to deal with a sick child again. There's no way I can do it. Yeah. I think it could be anything. It can be it can be food. It can be exercise. It can be people. It can be it can be you know hardcore opiates. It can be whatever. It's avoidance behaviour, isn't it? It's just what trauma does. You, you don't want to feel what you're feeling. Yeah, or, exactly. Or, you know, um, I'm also interested in this, and this does come out in the in in the BBC film. And again, it may be because I sort of resonate with it a bit. Was this thing also around the spiritual element of how you talk to your sister? And I think you said um, stuff happens. Um, yeah, some people might. some people might be cynical about that but I will say I can 100% relate to that and know that directly from my own personal experience my sister was really quite protective of me when she was alive yeah. and I just feel like she is and, and do you know what I've had three separate psychics all tell me that she sits on my right shoulder and that she's go. with she's with me all the time. And yeah. my mum and dad once got annoyed because um, I think it was my mum said, "Oh, I we, she's I never feel her ear because she's always with you." <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I want to talk um, also a bit about kind of comedy. Actually, go on in gen- in general, like this this whole you know we, social media has made sort of comedy a little bit more. I don't know what's the word um, dicey. Dicey, yeah, that's the word. Dicey. We've had a couple of big incidents lately, the sort of Chris Rock, Will Smith thing. Oh. Uh, you know, anybody who's been sleeping under rock, I don't need to explain what, what can happen. Will Smith. <laughs> yeah, everyone uh, Chris knows. Rock said something and Will Smith came up and he slapped him. What um, What was your take on that? Are you in the Comedians Union on Team Chris Rock or do you have a different take on it? I reckon anyone who's not easily manipulated by sentimentality is on Chris Rock's side. Um, I Ooh, reckon, okay, okay, I, yeah. I, I reckon that Will Smith has got a lot of stuff going on. Um, anyone who uses violence as a form of communication normally has some stuff that they're dealing with that has come to the surface. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel that there was a lot of inconsistencies surrounding that entire situation, including the videos of them laughing about it afterwards. Yeah, um, okay. Well, so it could be all a bit of a publicity stunt. 
No, I don't think it was a publicity stunt. I think he genuinely got up on stage and smacked the shit out of Chris Rock. Um, But I also feel like Will has a lot of stuff going on. He's obviously not communicating it effectively, which is why it came out in his fists. And also, unfairly, he took it out on what was essentially a dad joke. Yeah. I, if we're going to be censoring jokes, I don't reckon a G.I. Jane joke is really a joke that we should Let me be... play devil's advocate because I've seen I've been watching this over Facebook and Twitter yeah. and, and some people are like, well, violence is also not just physical, it's verbal and, and, and actually, you know, she's had a P-shirt and this is really sensitive <sighs> and it's really, you know, it's a sexist, it's this. You, no, you disagree, obviously? Well, no, I don't disagree. I mean, that's not a conversation I can really have. i just talking about... The, the physical act of violence between mm. Will and Chris. I don't even consider Jada uh, in this situation because she didn't get up. She has also... But wasn't been... it the glance? This is what some people are saying. It was the glance because well, he was laughing and then she glanced and then suddenly jumped up, didn't No it? one saw the glance, that her looking over at him, though. We've all just imagined that's what she's doing. Uh, okay. Right. No one saw her look. No one saw her look over at Will to instruct him to. That's go on interesting stage. that people have jumped to that conclusion. Then, of course isn't it? they have. She's a black yeah. woman, and it's and, it's her and fault. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's her that. fault, yeah. and all of that sort of stuff. We don't know what's going on in their relationship, except for what they've allowed us to see on red table talks. We know that um, there is a some sort of thing going on. They, they're in an open marriage. She had mm. sex with someone else. We know all of that stuff. We know that he often gets um, he his 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 performance in, in bed and the size of his penis are spoken at length on Red Table Talk. That's happened. But we don't know the dynamic of their relationship. And I think it is sexist and racist for us to comment on what Jada's involvement is on this. All I can discuss is that Will should not be putting his emotions out there like that for himself and all the work that he's done in it, all the good work he's done in his life to be who he is. Uh, Should he have not been allowed to accept the award? Um, but, I mean, uh, what message does that send? Someone's it's physically. Well, I think someone. it was all too quick for for the for right. the, the academy to really react to it. Um, I didn't actually watch his acceptance speech because I saw the the tears and I just felt like I shouldn't watch this mm. breakdown of this 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 what I've referred to as one of my favourite actors of all time. He was yeah. I love a lot of Will Smith movies. I don't know if he should have won the Oscar for that film, though. That's another conversation. <laughs> no. no. Uh, what about the precedent it sets? I mean, first thing I would say is that Chris Rock's quite little and Will Smith's <laughs> bigger than it. Would, would he have done that to uh, other comedians? I don't know. The second thing is, and I think this is where people like Ricky Gervais and others have come out quite strongly and just said that, you know, this sets a really dangerous precedent that now... You can hit comedians. I don't believe in verbal censorship, really. I think that I, th- I think that we should be allowed as comedians... I say this because I'm a comedian, but I don't want people trying to censor the way I speak until I've actually... That's why I do work in progress is to work out mm. what my opinion is on stuff or actually not work out what my opinion is, but work out how to make something funny because yeah. I believe you can talk about pretty much anything as long as you have the writing ability to have a punchline at the end of it. But um, you're, also, you're also in an interesting position to say that because, you know, this there is this whole debate around, you know, responsibility and when is freedom of speech not freedom when is it a joke all this kind of stuff but because you know you're you're not you know you're not Jim Davidson or kind of sort of coming from that perspective you're somebody who's 
you know, been in around you know, progressive circles. I think you started off. I'm not on the woke mic, though. Kind of, I, I like no, I'm not saying you're woke, but I'm not saying you're woke. But I think you're you're attuned enough into that. I don't punch down. I think that we, as a written rule, I think it should be with comedians. You shouldn't punch down. Yeah. Um, I mean, some people do and make a lot of money from doing that, but it's not really my vibe. I don't want to like my. No. But the problem is, is that Chris Rock wasn't really punching down he was sort of punching across because she's a multi-millionaire <laughs> well yeah what about you've worked with jimmy carr haven't you on eight out of ten cats what did you make of his joke about when he likened about the holocaust and he, he made a reference to gypsies i thought it was a bit lazy yeah um i thought that that joke he wanted to do about a different demographic but he didn't have the balls to do it so he just chose a demographic that is silent mostly because we don't let them speak you know but also at the same time like people love jimmy carr and you can't like he didn't he didn't do anything illegal but <laughs> you know yeah. he just said a thing he shouldn't have probably said and he probably regrets saying it in the way that he did and he was probably learned a lesson i don't know i don't know him that well i worked mm. with him he was very yeah. nice he was you know he's very professional um and that is what he does he is known for you know shock and controversial material and we've seen it with Dave Chappelle as well, haven't we, over this kind of trans stuff. You've seen, I think, Gervais as well. That Do you feel that we are entering a kind of a time where comedians are starting to sort of self-check themselves a bit and they're a little bit, you know, kind of, oh, better not do that joke or a bit, you know, and that's the death knell for comedy, surely. I feel like when you're as successful and famous as Ricky Gervais and Dave Chappelle and all these people, I feel like you have a, um, it's easier for you to do jokes about stuff like that. And actually, I feel like it's much cleverer to do um, material where you're not just doing it to create controversy to sell what it is you're doing. Yeah. Um, and or you're playing with a stereotype in a subtler way, in a kind of not in an overt way, which in fairness to Gervais, in terms of does, you know, disability yeah. and race, and certainly did that in the office. But some of his more recent stuff is a little bit more on the front foot, I, I guess. And that's what people find um, offensive. I mean, he's been cancelled in some circles, as has Dave Chappelle. Would, I, would you be against the notion of cancelling, period? Or would there be I anything, would, would there be a point where you think, well, actually, that's too far or not? I don't agree with cancelling. I also don't think can I like I don't I I don't agree with cancelling people. I also don't think it is it is possible to cancel someone. I mean Louis C.K. just won a Grammy. So I yeah. I, I I think I think it's easier to cancel people when they're not white straight guys. Or white yeah. straight guys who are millionaires. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, but I don't like cancel culture. I don't think that the way that it's we happened can... to a few, though, isn't it? You know, Danny Baker, you know, lost his job, didn't he? Over, you know, oh, yeah, Radio Five, that over the picture he put up, which you could argue was a misconstrue of that. There's been there has been, you know, uh, occasions. I, I just wonder whether sort of celebrities, are, you know, not just comedians, are just sort of in fear of, and whether that even affects how you would tweet or anything or, or not. I don't. Well, I hate Twitter, which is what's in my bio. I I think it's it's awful. I don't I don't feel like Twitter is useful whatsoever. Um, mm. I always hold anything I want to say. I sort of keep it in my draft folder, and then I'll say it on stage. Okay, um, yeah. But I I don't feel like we should be having this sort of discourse on a platform like Twitter. And I also think we need to, as a society, be 
okay with the word sorry. We need to allow people to apologize. But I, I it's, do you know what? This conversation is so nuanced. Yeah. I could say something and then in a week's time I could change my feel mind yeah. and yeah. I could feel differently about it, which is always why a lot of us are, are sort of reticent to put our yeah. opinions across because anyone with any intelligence knows that opinions are fleeting. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's an interesting point around forgiveness is, is that, that no longer perhaps is the apology and the recognition of I made a mistake enough to save somebody. I reckon that apologies need to be real and they need to feel real. They yeah. need to not be a reaction to to messing up. I reckon if you're going to apologise, you need to take some time to do that and actually make it worth it. Yeah, and not like a Boris apology. I, I apologise if you feel that, that I've offended if you. you. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it needs to be I, responsibility on the I, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. you know, like... I've had people over the pandemic who treated me badly in the past sent me, I had an ex-boyfriend of mine send me an apology email and it took him seven years to send it. And he he sent it to me over lockdown and it was the most beautiful thing I've ever read. And I immediately phoned him and I said to him, I said, you know, of course, of course I forgive you. And I'm sorry for what I did in their relationship as well. And it was a really lovely moment. between us both. He, you know, it was important to me that someone that was in my life like he was doesn't go around hating me. And, 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 and it always felt bad that he did, even though he dumped me. Um, yeah. But he, no, apologized. I get it. I get it. Yeah. Yeah. He apologized yeah. for his behavior later. And actually I, and, and I, I was ready to accept the apology as well, you know, and that's the thing, a good apology, one that feels real is really easy to accept. Maybe that's where this comes from. This sort of like you you make one mistake and you're damned to, to, to Alcatraz comes from there probably being so many slightly hollow apologies and not real ones that people have become slightly cynical about that. Yeah, for uh, sure. It's a shame though, because I think you're right. There is some, you know, without being too hippie about it, there is some beauty in like what you just described. Around, you know, and there is a redemptive thing, isn't there? Which I think is, is, is what makes us human. And, and we all fuck up and make mistakes. Our favourite movies are about redemption. We love it. Like, you know, someone that realises the error of their ways and comes to a better um, understanding of themselves at the end of... Yeah, Hannibal Lecter. Hannibal Lecter, when he (laughs) apologised at the end, was, uh, you know, beautiful moment, beautiful (laughs) moment. Yeah, yeah. Um, Hang on a sec. What do you want, Mum? Going. Where are you going? We're going out. Where are you going? Shopping. Oh, are you coming back? No, no, not before you... uh... Where are you going? Shopping, shopping? Bath. Oh, nice. Oh, I'll miss you. Hang on. Let me hug him. This is the advert bit again. Bristol Cable, we are in need of more members. We want to sustain our public model of ownership and we want to use it to talk about interesting things in the city, controversial things, challenging topics. That's online, this podcast, in the newspaper and events that we do all across the board. So please check out the website and if you want to chuck some money in and become a member of the Bristol Cable... That would be brilliant. Back to the chat. Back there. Let's fast forward a bit to just one bit about Bristol with you coming back. In the BBC film, this is We Are England, which sounds like an EDL rally, doesn't it, actually? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it does. I love it. But it's really good. I don't want to give too much away. I want people to watch it. It's on the iPlayer now. But in this, you are coming back to Bristol. Have you moved yet, Jade? 
I've bought a house. I've bought a renovation in South Bristol. Lovely. And it's a big family project. The house in the documentary. And it's my dad helping me with it. And I basically say, if he helps me with the house, the rule is that I won't put him in a home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, and yeah. my brother's done all the electrics for me. So I've got the house. I'm just not in it yet. I've had it a year and I'm still not in okay. it. And you had this thing about, like, we need to go to leave Bristol uh, which I think maybe you don't need to so much now, perhaps. Now we've got Channel 4 here and sort of the, the city's changed yeah, it was a bit different in the 20, 20 years. It's a bit different, but you had to leave for fame and fortune. And now it's almost like you're you're big enough not to have to live in London. Is that kind of how it works a bit? Yeah, yeah London was never really my bag, to be honest with you. I, I, I sort of love the friends I've made there. I've got a great community of people, like the East London drag scene are like all my best mates and okay, I, yeah. I will have them in my life forever. But... In terms of what I need for my career, I, I just, I'm sort of ready to, I just want, you know, I've got a five bedroom house, mate. I wouldn't have been able Lovely. to buy that in London. And also no. I'm closer to my family and it was just Lovely. important for me to be here. South Bristol. Uh, South you're, Bristol. A, you're a South Bristol girl. You did say, which I need to pull you up on though, in the documentary, that all Go the on. posh people live in North Bristol and all the Bristolians <laughs> live in South Bristol. People and I did tweet saying the next documentary that Luke makes is going to take you around Southmead. Yeah, I mean, I did uh, remove, I did not, I, yeah, sorry guys, I hold my hands up. <laughs> I didn't talk about Henleys or Southmead. I'm so sorry. I, I realise that you guys get obliterated from the conversation in Bristol quite often. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, I, it was a sweeping generalisation. Coming back to the city, and you touch on this a bit and say that, you know, things have changed. I mean, obviously, Bedminster, where you're from, literally a stone's throw into sort of Southfields morphed into Bedminster that it's changed a lot in those 20 years. Are you noticing that now? Not just there, but across the city? Yeah, it's definitely there. It's definitely changed. There's a lot more coffee shops. There's loads of lovely little cafes to buy things. You can get really sort of chintzy bread. You can, yeah. you know, like it's a, it feels a lot safer than when I was growing up. When I was yeah. growing up, we had a curfew because there were murderers that hung out on the park wall. And that's the counter argument to gentrification, isn't it? I mean, I grew up in Eastern and it was like, I remember there was, a, uh, you know, this whole thing about sourdough bread. And I can remember my missus saying, well, you know, I'd rather I'd rather buy sourdough bread on the corner than crack, and that's what it used to be. You know what I mean? So there's just a flip side to this. It's not a bad thing, is it? Sometimes. Yeah, I don't think I don't think gentrification is necessarily a bad thing. I think gentrification in Bristol is ideal because we're so good at accepting lots of different people. The problem mm-hmm. with London is is loads of new people out of London move to London, think they own an area and forget about everyone that's from it because they yeah. will leave. Whereas we don't really have that here in Bristol. Oh, I don't know. I, I it, it, yeah, I would if you go to parts of East and agree, but even parts of Southfield, there are a lot of Londoners moving in. To Bristol now. It's, in oh, fact, I think, I, I'm not saying yeah. that Londoners aren't coming to Bristol. I'm just saying because it is not ten years ahead. I see. We're right. we're still in the interim where there are still people here from Bristol that remember old Bristol and have, I see have you, that yeah, connection. Yeah. I mean, you are, I guess, uniquely positioned because you you're from Bristol, you've gone away, and then you've come yeah. back to kind of see it with fresh eyes. No one can ever go at me, can they? <laughs> <laughs> they? They probably will in safe me now, but yeah, yeah, they will. I mean, I've. <laughs> I've, I've basically created some enemies, I think. Yeah, you need to do a stand-up in the in community centre in Safemead, I reckon. You can arrange it, yeah. Um, it's just, just yeah, it's, it's, it's a Bristol's in constant flux, I think, and, it, and it's it's very an interesting, exciting place. I think there are other people that are moving back as well. It seems to be the, the thing. Also, do you think the pandemic as well, that people now realise 
that you can work. Do you know what I mean? You can be anywhere, you know, to a, to a certain degree and work remotely as well. I know you can't work remotely because you're on stage, but, you know, you can answer emails and communicate with me like you are now from anywhere. Yeah, I think that now this has all happened with the pandemic changing the way that we're all working. I reckon that there's going to be a real... Uh, I think there's going to be a real shift on gentrification because I think people are going to be starting to buy in areas that they can afford in that are pretty. Um, mm. I, and, and instead of thinking that they need to be closer to the city. So I think in the next five to 10 years, we're going to see a massive shift in the types of people that we find in London and, and Bristol and to the types of people that we find in like other areas that are, you know, like I reckon a lot of people are going to go to Wales because it's so gorgeous. It's beautiful. And it's a, it's a lot cheaper as well. And it's real bridge, cheap. Yeah. yeah. In the Forest of Dean, went camping there with the kids last year. The taxi driver, we got in the taxi and he, and he was a bit offish of me. And I said, well, what, what's, what's the name? Oh, I thought you were one of those Bristol people that's buying houses up here like that. And he said, oh, there's loads of them. So I think there's this off spill. Um, now you're in Bristol though, are you going to be, you know, obviously don't have to give away the destinations too much, but are you going to be, you know, going to the local drinking halls and you're going to be, I don't know, sort of out and about in the city a little bit? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 100%. I've got, I've got lots of plans to be immersing myself into Bristol culture. I have yeah. no plans on being private here. I want to be out and about having a wonderful right. time. The other thing that I is really nice coming back is like how proud everyone is of me. It's really nice walking around and people just saying such uh, nice things to me. Yeah. And I'm, I'm going to want to lap that up. Do you know why that is though, as well? I think, you know, other than, you know, who you are is also because you kept a lot of people that, you know, I said earlier that there aren't enough people that have left, um, that have become famous in Bristol, but some of them sort of toned down the accent a bit or kind of code switch because you kind of maybe had to back then, but you haven't actually. You've, in, in fact, you've probably done the opposite and maybe dialed it up that you, you know, fiercely proud of who you are, where you're from and how you speak and how you conduct yourself. And I think that resonates with Bristolians. Do you know what? Everyone, everyone says that to me, have I dialed it up? I, I haven't. I can't speak any other way. And okay. when I try... Yeah. I can do the voice and I can do the accent, but yeah. basically I don't have the vocabulary to keep it up. So like <laughs> I say really wild sentences in ways that will, people will, I can communicate, but it yeah. can be looked down by people who are educated. Cause yeah. I, like even in this interview, I mean, even that sentence was grammatically all over the place. Like, mm. it, you know, like people will listen to this interview and, and, and it's quite difficult. People are so used to hearing erudite people speaking on TV shows that yeah. when someone like me comes along who communicates in a different way, they find it really hard. So I've had to really push through that. And I, I don't think I've And be judged for that, Jade, be judged for that. Cause I think there is the stereotype. Movie. I've had it as well. Stereotype of that you are either a bit thick or a bit simple. I always said that, you know, you don't see, there's there's not the sort of Hugh Edwards sort of Bristolian equivalent, is there? Do you know what I mean? It, we, we might get some comic stuff, but, some, but gravitas is still lacking a bit, I think. Yeah, well, that's where I'm coming in and I'm going to change all that. <laughs> Absolutely. I am. Yeah. I, I, I'm not just a comedian. I'm, you know, I do so many different things and I probably won't, I, I will always do live shows, but I am mm. an actor and I will be directing at some point and I sing right. opera and I wear fashion. Yeah, you're I, bloody I, singing. I thought that was, I thought it was a joke, like as in like, oh, ha 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 comedy, opera stuff, but you can actually bloody sing. I can bloody sing. And I yeah. have an, and I will say this, Neil, I have an impeccable taste. 
uh, in yeah. food and fashion. I uh, I have yeah. an attention to detail. I just yeah. don't communicate verbally in in because I'm not privately educated and I didn't go to debate squad or whatever they did. Yeah. I just it, it, I, but I am I'm very very clever. I'm really intelligent, mm-hmm. but it yeah. comes out of nowhere because you don't think I am because of the accent, but it's yeah. it's not the case. And so we can think, officially say you have gravitas. Then is that what you're trying I to say? I have massive gravitas, huge yeah. gravitas. Okay. <laughs> okay great great uh, what do you think though when you see sort of you know uh the sort of the vicky pollard sort of stereotype i do you know what i enjoyed vicky pollard i wouldn't you know Did when you? It, it was of a time and uh, i always made a joke that he must have been stood behind me and a news agents because that's exactly what i was like when i was when he went to bristol uni didn't he yeah um, well i spoke lucas, to, yeah. i spoke to yeah. matt lucas about this and we've worked out it could it could have happened that it could have been me <laughs> Because yeah. I used to wear a green Adidas, uh, no, a green Kappa Kagul, and I used to wear yeah. my hair like that, and I used to speak like that. That's exactly how, yeah, but, no, but, yeah, but, no, but I used to speak yeah. just like that. So there is a chance that Matt could, well be you. Wow. could have okay. been stood behind me in a shop yeah. near his university, listening to yeah. me order a packet of Lambert and Butler's. Lovely. He has got some stick for it, though, I think. And I wonder whether if that happened now, it would be received slightly differently. It wouldn't be made now. This no, is the thing. But... Like, there's lots of things that were of a time and now we've mm. changed and that's okay. Um, yeah. I I don't find Vicky Pollard offensive. I think it's funny. And I think Matt Lucas does the character. He's bang on. Let's be honest. We've all met her. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not... Yeah. It's, I, I... It's not you know there are there are people like that and it's absolutely fine and I know loads of people back at that time used to mm. feel we didn't feel triggered by it I thought it was me right let's talk about what's coming up for you you've got like a big big ridiculously long tour haven't you yes yeah, so I've just announced my brand new show that I am going on tour with I'm doing a mm. 61 date tour across the 61 UK. days 61 dates what in a row uh, uh, sort of. It's over. It's Bloody between, hell! Between so I'm previewing it June, July, and then basically from August until November, I'm going to be. I think yeah, no, actually the last date is on the eighth of December. So August till December, I'm going to be doing sixty-one dates over that time. Well, all over the UK, yeah. All over the UK, and I think there's going to be a plan to do some stuff in Ireland. That's not on the Amazing. list at the moment. You've done other tours be- before, but anything on this scale? Is this the biggest tour you've done? This is the biggest one I've done. I did. I toured twice with the last show that was on Amazon Prime, my series yeah. about Jumper slash The Ballad of Kylie Jenner's Old Face show. Um, <laughs> and I toured all over the UK with that. It went really well, loved it. And so now we've just decided to up the ante and get more. So we're doing another two dates at Bristol Old Vic, which I'm excited oh, about. Amazing. That's on the 23rd of October. I'm going to be doing a matinee and an evening show. Sold out 23rd. last time. Get your tickets quick. Um, but the biggest, yeah. most exciting one I've got is my London date is at the Hackney Empire. Wow. Um, Excellent. So that's really yeah. exciting. I'm I'm very excited about that. I've, I've got lots of plans to sort of make that show. You know, I think it's the purest, it's the purest form of, what's the word I'm looking for? The most naked form of communication or the most naked art form comedy i think do you know what I particularly disagree. if you particularly if you're your if you're yourself and you're giving of your of your heart and soul it must be the most i don't know can i let you in on no. a little secret go on it's all crap is it? go on. it's all yeah. bullshit okay yeah whenever you see a comedian on stage smashing it they have yeah. they have loads of experience under their belt 
and a show mm. that looks like it's improvised isn't improvised. Uh, yeah. It's only naked when you see someone at the very early stages of it and still they have sat and they've written jokes down. I would say that the most naked form of art and the only form of art there is that you cannot hide behind is singing. Okay, which because, is what you do as well, yeah. Because if you mess up when you're singing, there's nowhere mm. to go. But if you're a stand-up and you mess up and you, you and, and something doesn't land, you have like an arsenal of 25 things to get yourself out of those sticky spots. In singing, there's nowhere to go. Well, so if you die on your arse, it's, it's worse if you're singing than Well, in, in the early stages, you do... Um, you, I'll be honest with you. I haven't really died. I don't. You, I don't. I have. I've done. I've had okay. gigs that haven't gone well, but I don't really die on my arse. There's just, never. There's never. Because lots of Keith Mead and say when they first started, oh my god, it was just horrendous, and you have to go through that process a bit. You. you well, I didn't then. start stand up like the others. I started. It, I. I got into stand up through being a drag queen. I was an Adele impersonator, and I was the, oh, did yeah. the inflatable church. And I'd been on stage since I was five years old, whereas lots of stand-ups, their first five minutes they do is the first time they ever get on stage. So I had loads of stagecraft behind me. I just had no jokes, okay. which I'll be honest, has had a little bit of snobbery about it as well, because I've, <laughs> I've always been able to do jazz hands, but But it's, but it must be, it must be like, I don't know. Don't get nervous at all. No, I get nervous, but it's not for, it isn't for writing a new show. I know, yeah. like I know this new show that I'm writing, I know that I'm on to something and I know it's an interesting subject. Can you give a little, are you able to give a tiny little? Yeah. So it's called Men I Can Save You. And okay. <laughs> it's my love letter to men. Okay. Because men yeah. have been having a terrible time recently being told oh, left, terrible. right and centre that they're, yeah. they're bad people. And yeah. so, like all comedians, like myself, like Russell Brand did it once as well. I'm having my Jesus moment where I'm going to basically put myself in front of these men as the Messiah, and I'm going to mm-hmm. show them the way in this new world. But obviously, I'm yeah. taking their piss. Yeah, yeah. And it's going to feature contemporary dance at the end. Great. Yeah, yeah. Loads of jokes. I think I'm even going to probably have a little conversation about the whole. Will Smith, Chris Rock. Oh, are you? Okay, great. (laughs) I mean, I'm still developing at the moment. I've only done 10 previews so far. I do 25 previews before the show's ready. And then it's when you say previews, what do you mean? So work in progress shows. So shows that I charge a five or four and I might fuck up a bit. So I've got people just turn. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. That's good. Old comedians have those. So like Michael McIntyre will have loads of warm up shows. That's what they're called. And that's how I write them. It's exciting then, isn't it? Yeah, I, I yeah. love it. It's my, fa- it's the most thrilling part of this. This entire, entire situation is, is, is this bit is where I know that I've got a point, and I know that I've got a beginning, a middle, and an end. And now I'm just trying to find all of the through lines and the narratives. And great, you obviously do acting as well. You popped up in a little cameo in Stephen Merchant's The Outlaws, didn't you? I'd auditioned for it, and I didn't get the part, so I auditioned for the corrections officer. And then the casting director came up to me on the first read-through, and she said to me, I have never been more harassed about putting someone in something in my life, and that's from people saying that you should be in The Outlaws. (laughs) So I just want to say now, thank you to everyone who did that. Well, no, I was one of them, actually. Oh, were you? (laughs) Yeah, I was, yeah. Not just you, a couple of other ones as well, because I was a little bit... Uh, you know, obviously Stephen Merchant's a legend, you know, the local boy and all that kind of stuff. But I was a little bit like, oh, there aren't many Bristolians in this, are there? And they sort of tenuous link with a couple of them. And then, yeah, and then you popped up, I think, in, you were in Series 2, when you? were at the back end? Yeah. No, I'm in Series 1 and Series 2. I'm in both of right, them. Right. Okay. But it was quite a small role, wasn't it? Yeah, a small role, yeah. Yeah. 
I thought I actually did think you know, and I think she did a good job. In fairness, I'm not I'm not digging her out, but I did, I thought you were perfect for exactly for that role. Funny you said that, the probation officer, because um, I have a thing about people pretending to be Bristolian. The accent's always wrong. The are quite ropey. Yeah, exactly. And I was a bit like of all the directors I, that should have got that right for me would have, was Stephen Merchant. Well, it's it's a thing that the Bristolian accent's so difficult to do, isn't it? It's like one of those yeah. ones, isn't it? I, I'm, I'm yeah. at the moment in the middle of uh, making the Take That movie and I'm Northern for it. And it's um, it's much easier yeah. to do nor- to do like a Yorkshire well, accent. I just think we like to see a bit more representation, I think. And particularly now you've got the bottle yard and you've got lots of people coming in to make things in the city. There is a thriving production crews, but also young actors and stuff in the city, you know, that, that could do it a bit of a push. So I, I sort of see my role as being a well, bit I'm of a pain in, in the arse doing that a bit. So, I'm yeah. in the processes of writing things that are set in Bristol and oh, and they don't worry, I'm going to be very hot, hot on this accent thing for Excellent. sure. Good to hear. Good to hear. Who is your favourite comedian yourself? Do you have one? Or um, who inspired you as well? I don't really have one person I like everything of, but I have things that people did that I specifically love. Okay, so, like what? Obviously, with regards to being a comedic actress and being funny in that world and sketch and stuff, it's obviously my good, very good friends, Dawn French and Jennifer Saunders. Yeah. Um, I was very influenced by Dawn French growing up, being that she Brilliant. was obviously um, a, a larger lady as well. It was very much seeing myself on the television was very helpful from for me to believe I could do it. Sure. Um, I've also worked with both of them separately and they're absolute legends, as you could imagine. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I, in stand-up, I love George Carlin. I love Bill Hicks. I also love Bill Burr and Joe Rogan. I like Maria Oh, Bamford. Bill Burr is my favourite. Glad he's Bill Burr is my... Not, not, not enough people are on Bill Burr over here, though, are they? Oh, uh, Bill's very popular in comedy. Like, we all love him. I love Wonder Sykes as well. Um, uh, I love uh, Amy Poehler. I love Tina Fey. Oh, I love Kristen Wiig. She's fantastic. A lot of Americans, stuff, then. You like a lot of the Americans. I like a lot of... That's when it comes... To, yeah, actually, I do like a lot of American comedy, to be fair. I find British comedy um, it's just a bit, like, safe and posh. <laughs> yeah. Um, there, there, is it the Third Amendment thing, or the Fifth Amendment, whatever it's called, that they seem to be... Like, I watch some of these roasts. So I know you've been on the... the, um, the English British version of that, haven't you? But it's nowhere near as hardcore as the ones in America. They seem to be able to do and say anything. Yeah, they do go. I, I, the roast that I had here as well. He, he wanted to go close to the knuckle with regards to my sister, but I sort of said he couldn't do stuff about her just because. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I, my parents watch all the things I'm sure. in, and they don't really need to see my sister being roasted on a TV show. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. also, I don't want to make money out of that. But Americans yeah. do. I like. I enjoy watching it, but I don't really like this whole roasting culture either. I, I, it's not really. I don't want to be mean to people. I want to make people laugh. I don't know why I need to be mean to someone to do that. You know. And sometimes it's easy, isn't it, to do? It's harder to be sort of subtle. Well, like Sean Locke and that they do observational yeah. comedy I really like Sean Sean Locke's obviously Brilliant. someone that I absolutely love Kevin Bridges is fantastic I love Carrie Godleyman as well Sarah Millican did you used to watch 15 Stories High did you used to watch that I love 15 that? Stories yeah. High what a it's great one of my favourite favourite favorite sitcoms and yet again it's sort of under the radar a bit, isn't it? What a sensational series that was. Just genius. Yeah, it's just genius. And then they made well, they wouldn't the BBC wouldn't commission a second series, would they? I know. Which is I think they regret that now. But yeah, um, I bet they who do. don't can you who don't who don't you like? Or would you not say? <laughs> who do I not like? Um Oh, I don't know. I just like fun. Anybody? I, 
I just like I don't like people who aren't funny. I don't yeah. like clapter. You know when I don't like comedians that invoke clapter from people. You know when they say stuff that makes the audience whoop rather than laugh. I'm not into that. Yeah, stuff. like what like grandstanding on a something and an issue and yeah, yeah. I I like to be shook in my core. I like to be thrown out of my seat with a with a with a pithy line and a witty some witty repartee. Yeah. I, I'm not really into the whole like. Here's an opinion I have and why this group of people are bad and this group of people are good and we're going to triumph over adversity. Way! Yeah. I'm not into that. But you won't tell me who you don't like. Oh, God, no. Because, you know. Just, just give me a name. Jim Davison? <laughs> no, I don't. Have, Manning? Don't have an no. opinion. Don't have an opinion. No, no, no. no. Um, they, I, I would never say anything about those people because they come at you on the internet and I don't want to be I because yeah. this is the thing I if you go at people then you get shoved into this group that's like anti this and I don't want to be in that group either I want to yeah. be in the middle being like a Trojan horse of liberalism that's what you've got to do I don't yeah. want to like stand on a platform and like tell people that they're wrong and they should be living this way I want to make people laugh I, I don't need to put myself on a platform above people in order to 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 do the job I'm doing you know I want to talk about the absurdities of life make them laugh and give people a little bit of escapism because life's quite hard at the moment especially with all the fuel prices going up and at this time what we need are funny comedians amen Mm. that's a great way to end there you go I usually try and find something to disagree with, but nope. I've agreed with quite a lot of that you said. For <laughs> I, thought, I thought we might. We're Bristolians, of course we are. Yeah, I'm looking. Look forward to. I'm going to go and see you at the, the old Vic, though. Definitely on the. Oh, fabulous! And people from Bristol look forward to seeing you staggering from pub to pub on North Street, then, yeah, or, or, or in the centre. Yeah, uh, North yeah. Street. You'll see me. I I go to Mother's Ruin a lot. Do I love Corn Street at the moment? I think that's a real vibe. I'm yeah, I'm loving Bristol. I'm I'm really looking forward to getting to know it this summer as well. And oh, I can't wait for getting pissed on a boat somewhere in the good weather. That's what I want. Amazing. Well, yeah. welcome back. I Thanks, say it on, behalf, on behalf of the whole of Bristol. Thank you. I, think, I yeah. bloody love it here, and I'm sorry I had to leave, but now I'm back and I ain't going nowhere. Many thanks to Jade Adams for that brilliant chat on this week's episode of Bristol Unpacked. And next week, we have a bit of a break, but we'll be back soon with some mayoral referendum specials as we head out to vote. Should we have a mayor or not? Thanks for listening to Bristol Unpacked. I'm Neil Mags, and a big thanks to Rosa Eaton, our audio producer, Adam Cantwell-Corn, our executive producer, and Blue Dot for our music. Also, just like to thank our editor, Rosa Eaton, who is leaving us. This is her last episode, and we'd like to thank her for all her hard work, patience, understanding, and brilliance throughout the whole of Bristol Unpacked. And if you do want to become a member of the Cable and join Bristolian members all across the city, chipping in every month, then please go to the website to find out more.